Let's play it by ear. Let's see how far we get on chapter 5, and then we'll see what we got. We'll see what we got. Sometimes these things take on a pace of their own, and sometimes I can't even predict how I'm going to go off track and how I'm going to go off the script. So sometimes these things take on a life of their own. We don't have the time to delve into chapters 2, 3, and 4. I wish I did. I wish I had the time. There are some wonderful gems in there. What we're going to be talking about now for this afternoon is we're going to be talking about chapter 5. And we're going to be talking about the most misunderstood steps of 3 and 4. 2 and 10 are the most underutilized steps that there are. And 3 and 4 are the most misunderstood steps. (laughs) And they're so simple that people try in their zeal to overcomplicate them, and that is where most of the problems occur. The steps that we work today were heavily influenced by the Oxford Group movement. And Sam Shoemaker was, as I've told you already, he was the Episcopal minister in New York at the, at the cavalry mission, and he was the Oxford Group's man in New York City. Sam Shoemaker had a lot of influence on Bill Wilson. A lot of influence on Bill Wilson. And Sam Shoemaker taught the Oxford Group members that when trying to get to God, there will be four impediments to God. An impediment is something which slows or stops you from getting your goal. That there were four impediments to God. The first one being a resentment that you will not let go of. The second one being a secret that you will not tell. The third one being a restitution that you will not make. And the fourth one being a restitution... A restitution that you... Did I cover them all? I'm sorry. Resentment, secret, restitution. Wait a minute. Oops. I got a brain cramp here. Restitution that you will not make. Secret that you will not tell. Restitution that you will not make. And a vicarious thrill that you will not give up. Now, when I say a vicarious thrill, I'm not talking about playing with your dog or playing with your child. I'm not talking about that. A vicarious thrill would be lying and getting away with it. Stealing and getting away with it. Cheating on your spouse and getting away with it. I'm talking about lying and cheating and stealing and the thrill that comes from shoplifting or the thrill that comes from getting away with something, not paying a bill or cheating someone in business. That's what I'm talking about. So these four impediments are all over our steps, are they not? That vicarious thrill, six and seven, resentment that you will not let go of, step four, step ten, that secret that you will not tell, five, and that restitution that you will not make, eight and nine. And the book is very clear that these are the things which will, which will stop you from getting to God. Now, what I am doing when I am working the steps is I am having, I am creating a miracle essentially, but I'm creating a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps. Now let's go to chapter 5 and let's remember that before we do anything with the text, that this chapter in and of itself was written by Bill 
in his apartment late at night. Bill had become quite nocturnal at this stage of his life. And as such, he was up at night and he said that he had his pencil in one hand and in the other hand was his pad of paper. And he said he felt like the pencil had gotten a life of its own. And he said that the pencil flew across the pages. And in less than 20 minutes, he wrote chapter 5, one of the greatest pieces of spiritual literature inside one of the greatest pieces of spiritual literature that the world has ever seen. But there were some changes that were forced upon him. And there were some things that occurred that created tremendous controversy. That he was not able to just force on the fellowship what he had written and that he had to make some changes. Okay. Let's go to page 58 and let's see what was the final group conscious of these steps. And by the way, I don't know if an ask it basket is being circulated is it that's it there's nothing in here there is nothing in here to suggest I am that's what I do every day that's why I work the steps that's why I work the steps nope there's nothing should I pass this one or what should we do okay because I don't see anything coming around I don't see anything up here okay now Let's go to page 58 and let's see what happened here and how it works. My book would only go to page 58 and that whatever it's on would be okay here. How it works, chapter 5. Rarely have we seen a person fail who has thoroughly followed our path. Those who do not recover are people who cannot or will not completely give themselves to this simple program usually men and women who are constitutionally incapable of being honest with themselves, there are such unfortunates. They are not at fault. They seem to have been born that way. They are naturally incapable of grasping and developing a manner of living which demands rigorous honesty. Their chances are less than average. There are those, too, who suffer from grave emotional and mental disorders, but many of them do recover if they have the capacity to be honest. Now, is he saying to you that you have to be honest cash register? Yes. But he's also saying this. The honesty to which he is referring is the honesty that you must have to say to yourself, I am a compulsive overeater. My life is unmanageable, and I cannot do this on my own. I am incapable of doing this on my own, that I need help. I cannot conquer this illness by myself and of myself. I cannot do it. And that is the honesty that he is referring to. It is vital. It is absolutely vital for me to recover, to know in my heart right here that I am not like other people. It says in a previous chapter the idea that somehow, some, some way, the compulsive overeater will be able to eat like normal men must be smashed. Okay. Our stories disclose in a general way what we used to be like, what happened and what we are like now. If you've decided you want what we have and are willing to go to any length to get it, then you are ready to take certain steps. And we talked about that when I spoke this morning, that this to me is step zero. This is the 
emanation point of everything. If you want what we have, what is it we seem to have? At the risk of being repetitive, which as one of you at least knows, I do tend to repeat things quite a bit, but I'm going to say it again. What is it that you have that I seem to want that you're not eating? Hardly. There's people at Weight Watchers that are not eating. There's people at uh, McDonald's that are not eating. There's people at Nutrisystems, Metafast. They're not eating either. But what you have is what I want because you are not eating and you are doing so happily. And as such, that you are doing so happily is what's attracting me into the program. And it says, and are willing to go to any length to get it. Ask yourself this question, for God's sakes, is there anything you are not willing to do to recover? Because if there are things you are not willing to do to recover, then we are not going to waste our time any longer trying to convince you to do those things. We are not here to convince you to do things against your will. We are a program of Overeaters Anonymous, and we are people who must be willing to go to any length to get this recovery. Then you are ready to take certain steps. At some of these, we balked. We thought we could find an easier, softer way, but we could not. With all the earnestness at our command, we beg of you to be fearless and thorough from the very start. Some of us have tried to hold on to our old ideas, and the result was nil until we let go, absolutely. So when it says the result was nil until we let go, absolutely, it again reminds me that... God is a vending machine. I bet you didn't expect to hear me say that this morning. God is a vending machine. If the product in the vending machine costs a dollar and I put in 99 cents, what do you think I'm going to get out of the machine? Nothing. I'll be lucky if I get my 99 cents back. And if the vending machine is in one of the grocery stores that somebody here does the publicity for that's sitting in the front row, I'll be lucky to get most of that 99 cents back or any of it. Okay. The result was nil. Nil means nothing was nil until I let go absolutely. And again, God either is or he isn't. He is everything or he is nothing. What is my choice to be? At some of these, we oh, I did that already. <clears throat> Remember that we deal with alcohol, cunning, baffling, powerful. Now, in that sentence, remember that we deal with alcohol, cunning, baffling, powerful. A sponsee once asked somebody, their sponsor, what is the most important word in that sentence? And the sponsor said, what do you think it is? He says, cunning. Sponsor says, no. Baffling? No. He says, powerful? No. The most important word in that sentence is, remember. Remember that we deal with alcohol, cunning, baffling, powerful, without help. It is too much for us. There is one who has all power. Notice that one is in capitals. That one is God. May you find him now. Half measures availed us nothing. And when the big book wants to tell us things, it doesn't tell it to us once. It doesn't tell it to us a couple of times. It tells it to us a lot of times. We just read that the result was nil until we let go absolutely. Here we're seeing half measures availed us nothing. How many times does the book have to tell me this before I finally get it, that half measures avail me nothing? I'm either walking toward God or I'm walking toward the food, and there's no middle ground. Everything I do today, everything I say today, everywhere I go today is either pointing me in the direction of God or the food. 
if everything I say today, everywhere I go today, everything that comes in and out of my mouth is on the front page of the Chicago Tribune, am I okay with that? Because if I'm not, then I'm engaging in activities that I want kept secret unto me, and that is where the illness lives. That is where the sickness lives. Remember that Sam Shoemaker taught us a resentment that you will not let go of, a vicarious thrill that you will not let go of, a secret that you will not tell, and a restitution that you will not make will impede you to the God you want to grasp hands with so you can recover. Here are the steps. Oh, sorry. We asked his protection, right? Half measures availed us nothing. We stood at the turning point. We asked his protection with care and care with complete abandon. Here are the steps we took as suggested as a program of recovery. Now, we're not going to read all 12 steps. We're going to go to page 263. And we're going to look at the steps as they were in the Oxford Group movement. Now, remember that the steps are divided into four distinct sections. Step one, admission. Step two through seven, submission. Steps eight and nine, restitution. 10, 11, and 12, construction. One, admission. Two through seven, submission. Three, excuse me, uh, eight and nine, restitution. 10, 11, and 12, construction. 263. He sold himself short. It's 263. If you don't have a fourth edition, look at your neighbors who's next to you or something. Okay. Number one, complete deflation. This is a the thing in here. Sorry. Okay, complete, good thing you don't speak Yiddish. Uh Uh-oh. Complete deflation. Oh, boy, that's a dollar. Okay, complete deflation, dependence and guidance from a higher power. Three, moral inventory. Four, confusion, confusion, confession, confusion, I'm confused. Confession, five, restitution, and six, continued work with other alcoholics. Let's go back to page 260. I'm sorry, 60, 60, I'm sorry. Page 60, page 60. And we're going to look at the ABCs in a way that probably you've not looked at before. And we're going to take something that you hear... Some executioner designed this thing to cut right into my leg here. But anyway, that's okay. I hold no resentment. Um, We're going to take a look at these things maybe in a new way. And these are things that when you usually hear them, you're either in the parking lot getting into the meeting or you're playing with your cell phone or you're looking at your neighbor or maybe you're thinking about what you're going to have for dinner that night or something. We're going to look at those ABCs in a way that might shed some new light on their intense, profound, and wonderful meaning. So let's take a look at many of us exclaims, page 60, top. What an order. I can't go through with it. Do not be discouraged. No one among us has been able to maintain anything like perfect adherence to these principles. We are not saints. The point is we are willing to grow along spiritual lines. The principles we have set down are guides to progress. We claim spiritual progress rather than spiritual perfection. 
our description of the alcoholic, the chapter to the agnostic, the description of the alcoholic is the doctor's opinion and chapters 1, 2, and 3. The description of the agnostic, excuse me, the description of the, the chapter to the agnostic, chapter 4. And our personal adventures before and after made clear three pertinent ideas. A, that we were alcoholic and could not manage our own lives. What is an alcoholic? It's a person that has the twist of the mind and the allergy of the body. And if you don't have the twist of the mind and you don't have the allergy of the body, you're not a compulsive overeater. And if you have the twist of the mind and the allergy of the body, you must, you must do what it says here. And we'll get to that in just a second. But that we were alcoholic and could not manage our own lives. Now, some of you are sitting there thinking, but I'm a doctor, I'm a lawyer, I'm a secretary. I work for a grocery store chain and, and do publicity for the grocery store chain. Or I work in the restaurant business. Or I'm an engineer in the water. Or I work for the county of Orange County. Whatever that may be for you, I'm not saying you can't do your job. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is you can't manage your own life because you cannot control the amount of food you eat once you've started and you can't keep from eating now that you want to. You can't keep from eating because of the twist of the mind and you can't, you can't control the amount you eat once you've started because of the allergy in the body. Okay, number two, that probably no human power could have relieved our alcoholism. <coughs> Probably no human power could have relieved our alcoholism. And how many of you, and I'm included in this, have believed that if we had more money, we wouldn't eat like this. If we had a new car, we wouldn't eat like this. If we had a spouse, we wouldn't eat like this. If we had a better spouse or a different spouse, or if we had a collie instead of a German Shepherd or a wire hair dachshund instead of a schnauzer, that we wouldn't eat this way. How many of us have obsessed for hours and years of our life that if this was different or if I had a different mother or a different father that I, I wouldn't eat like this and none of those things are true I'm going to give you some names I want you to think about I want to give you some names to think about because these people through their lives illustrate this point exactly Jackie Gleason President William Howard Taft John Candy, uh, Elvis Presley, Karen Carpenter. Um, what's the other one? Not John Candy, but the other one, Christopher Farley. All these people illustrate people that have had it all, and yet they died in the illness. Mama Cass Elliot. Mama Cass Elliot died in the London Palladium because she was shoving a sandwich in her mouth before a performance. She had the voice of an angel. Karen Carpenter had the voice also of an angel. And she died, her heart blew apart because of the anorexia and the bulimia that she had had during her life. President William Howard Taft couldn't get elected dog catcher today but he was a 350-pound president of the United States that could not fit into the bathtub at the White House, and his bathtub from Steuben, or not Steubenville, from Ohio had to be brought out so he could take a bath. How embarrassing. How embarrassing. 
and these people had it all. And yet, they couldn't get out of the way of the juggernaut of what this is. This disease does not discriminate over who it kills. Black, white, Jew, Gentile, rich, poor, Yale, or jail, it will be mind over matter. It doesn't mind taking you out and you don't matter. <laughs> this illness is mind over matter. It doesn't mind killing you and you don't matter. And on the way to death, you'll beg for death. On the way to death, you'll beg for the end to be near and swift because this disease is unrelenting and unmerciful. There is no more brutal way to go. Trust me. I have not knocked on death's door. I was kicking it in. I was kicking in death's door. The only reason I stopped kicking, I couldn't lift my foot anymore, so I eased the pain with a Kit Kat bar and said, screw it, I'll live another day. Take a look at those names. If you don't know who they are, you can Google them. That God could and would if he were sought. But not if you have a God that's adversarial to you. Not if you have a God that you do not have the willingness to believe in. Not if you have a God that isn't personal to you. Not if you have a God that in your mind doesn't care about you. I have to have a God that gives a darn about me. I have a God that cares when I'm crying and when I'm scared and when I'm lonely and when I'm hurt and when I'm happy. My God cares about me. I hope yours cares about you. I hope yours cares about me too, but I hope your God cares about you. I hope your God cares about you too. Being convinced we were at step three, which is that we decided to turn our will and our life over to God as we understood Him. Now here's the first of the things in program you hear all the time that many people do not understand. My life is my action, my will is my thinking. What are we turning over to God? My will and my life, my thinking and my action. We have one alum from the Scottsdale groups with us today who goes to, went to my big book studies in Scottsdale all the time. Have I ever said that before? Yes. Oh good, okay, I was just checking, okay. Glad to see you, Allie. Okay, now... We have our will and our life is our thinking and our actions, okay? That's what we're turning over to God. And we're not turning anything over to God in step three. We're just expressing a willingness to do so, right? Okay, just what do we mean by that and just what do we do? The first requirement is that we be convinced on it that... On, uh, the first requirement is that we be convinced that any life run on self-will can hardly be a success. Maybe I'm better off without the bumps. Okay. On that basis, we are almost always in collision with something or somebody, even though our motives are good. Most people let, try to live by self-propulsion. Each person is like an actor who wants to run the whole show. Now, what we're describing in this first paragraph is the first defective character that will rise its ugly head in any type of a disturbance, and that is the character defect of selfishness. If I'm your sponsor and you call me on a 10-step call, 99.9% .9 of the time you call me with a uh, resentment or you call me with a fear, and we're going to get to what's the first thing that's showing its head, rearing its head? Selfishness, right? 
So we're describing this. We want to run the whole show. He's forever trying to arrange the lights, the ballet, the scenery, and the rest of the players in his own way. If his arrangements would only stay put, it would, if only people would do as he wished, the show would be great. Everybody, including himself, would be pleased. Life would be wonderful. If only you would do what I say, right? In trying to make these arrangements, our actor may sometimes be quite virtuous. He may be kind, considerate, patient, generous, even modest and self-sacrificing. On the other hand, he may be mean, egotistical, there's the word, selfish and dishonest. But as with, oy, with most humans, <coughs> he is more likely to have varied traits. So we've just described the defect of selfishness. Selfishness is what we've described. That we want people to stick to our script. Now we're going to describe the defect of self-seeking, which is the actions we take to try to coerce other people into doing our will. What usually happens, the show doesn't come off very well, he begins to think life doesn't treat him right, he decides to exert himself more. He becomes on the next occasion still more demanding or gracious as the case may be. Still the play does not suit him. Admitting he may be somewhat at fault, he is sure that other people are more to blame. He becomes angry, indignant, self-pitying. What is his basic trouble? Is he not really a self-seeker even when trying to be kind? Is he not the victim of the delusion? What's a delusion? A delusion is like a mirage. It's, it's, it's an illusion. Something that appears like it's real, but it's really not. That he can wrest satisfaction and happiness out of this world if only he manages well. We try to manipulate them and they see right through us, don't they? Just like we see through them and they fight back. Okay? Is it not evident to the rest of the players that these are the things he wants and do not his actions make each of them wish to retaliate, snatching all they can get out of the show? Is he not even in his best moments a producer of confusion rather than harmony? Our actor is self-centered, egocentric, as people like to call it nowadays. He is like the retired businessman who lolls in the Florida sunshine in the winter, complaining of the sad state of the nation, the minister who sighs over the sins of the 20th century, politicians and reformers who are sure all would be utopia if the rest of the world would only behave, the outlaw safecracker who thinks society has wronged him, and the alcoholic who has lost all and is locked up. Whatever our protestations are not most of us concerned with ourselves, our resentments, and our self-pity. That's what most of us are concerned with most of the time. So we're sitting there wringing our hands. Oh, what do they think of me? What do they think of me? And most, most of the time, the answer is nothing. They're thinking about them. They're not sitting and thinking about me. They're not sitting and thinking about anybody but them. And that's as it is. That it, I'm not saying it's as it should be, but that's as it is. 20% of the people I run into... They're going to like me. 20% of the people I run into, they're not going to like me. 60% in the middle, I'm not even registering on their radar. That's just life. That's everybody. That's just not me. That's everybody. Most of the people I run into, I'm not even registering on their radar. <laughs> anyway, that's another dollar. Okay. Okay, so we... Tr so, thank you. Selfishness, self-centeredness, that we think is the root of our troubles, driven by a hundred forms of fear, self-delusion, self-sinking, and self-pity. We step on the toes of our fellows and they retaliate. Sometimes they hurt us seemingly without provocation, but we invariably find that at some time in the past we have made decisions based on self which later placed us in a position to be hurt. So we kind of overlook the fact that the reason we're hurt in this scenario 
is we did something to set it in motion. We said something or omitted something to cause this disturbance in the other person. Okay, so our troubles we think are basically of our own making. They arise out of ourselves. And the alcoholic is an extreme example of self-will run riot. And that's a, pro that's a program axiom. Self-will run riot. Although though he usually doesn't think so. So above... So, huh. Though he usually doesn't think so. Try it without the book. Above everything, we alcoholics must be rid of this selfishness. We must or it kills us. We must or it kills us. How does it kill us? Because it creates that disturbance. The disturbance causes pain. The pain comes from the rise in the emotional level. The pain is there, knocks on the door of the mental twist. The mental twist sends me reeling into the food. Once I eat the food, I trigger the physical allergy so I can't stop. And I'm off to the races. I will pass through the well-known stages of a spree, emerging remorseful with a firm resolution not to eat that way again and we will repeat that cycle over and over and over again. The mind telling me that I can eat the food and the body ensuring that I cannot. Okay. We must or it kills us. God makes that possible. And there often seems no way of entirely getting rid of self without his aid. Notice his is in capitals. Many of us had moral and philosophical convictions galore, but we could not live up to them even though we would have liked to. Neither could we reduce our self-centeredness much by wishing or trying on our own willpower. We had to have God's help. This is the how and the why of it. First of all, we had to quit playing God. It didn't work. Next, not in a year, not in a month, next, we decided that hereafter in this drama of life, God was going to be our director. He is the principal, we are his, we are his agents. He is the father, we are, and we are his children. Most good ideas are simple, and this concept was the keystone of the new and triumphant arch through which we passed to freedom. Now, he is the principal, we are his agents. I have a real estate license in the state of Arizona. I'm licensed there, and... There is a fiduciary duty that I have toward anybody that we represent. What I do is I have my business and I also get leads for a business broker. If you don't know what a business broker is, a real estate broker sells your house or your commercial property. A business broker sells your business. Very simple. When we take on a client and they sign that listing, what are we expected to do by law and by custom? We are expected to put the needs of the, of the principal before the needs of the agent. And if it can be proven that I did not do that, I could not only forfeit my license, but I can be prosecuted and fined for not doing that. You all with that? We are the agents. He is the principal. He is the father. We are his children. Now, some of us are thinking, uh-oh, I don't want to go into that one. My father was a this or my father was a that. I'm not saying he wasn't. But now we're talking about the perfect father. Now we're talking about your heavenly father. Now we're talking about the father of light who presides over us all. And that's the father that we're talking about. He is the director. We are the actors. Okay? 
he's going to be our director. What does the director do in a, in a movie? He tells you not only what to say, the writers tell you what to say, but he tells you how to emote, how to say it, where to stand, how to act. You're going to be sad. You're going to be happy. Here's why. Here's this. Here's that. So the director runs the show on a movie set. Okay? You're Southern California people there. You've got this down. Okay? Now, when we are talking about the third step as we're almost ready to go into the fourth step, let's take a look for just a minute at where anger comes from and where fear comes from and where all these emotions come from. Let's take a look. Now, every human being in this room and any room you could point to has basic instincts of life. And these basic instincts of life are God-given instincts. They are imbued into our spirit by God. And they are responsible for the preservation and propagation of the human race as we know it today. These instincts are not bad things. These instincts are wonderful things. They are miracles of God, and we treasure them, but it's how we use them. And when we mix them and couple them to ego, or an ego ranting that says, I'm not getting enough, or it's not coming to me the way I want it, that is where addiction lives, right there. So let's take a look at the three basic instincts of life Understanding, of course, that if all these instincts were satisfied in all people to the nth degree, there would never be any conflict or controversy in the world. But, of course, they can't be. If I want to sit on that chair and my friend Roanne wants to sit on that chair, there's a conflict. One of us is going to get what we wanted and one of us is not. We can all see that. Okay, So, we have three basic instincts of life. The first one being the social instinct. And the social instinct is going to have a couple of parts to it. The social instinct is what you might think. I'm very concerned with what other people think of me and how I'm perceived socially. Now, I have a 20-year-old daughter. And when my daughter was in... Cochise Middle School in Scottsdale, Arizona, I used to pick her up from school every day because I worked from home. And when I would pick my daughter up from Cochise Middle School, <laughs> I would never hear about math or science or algebra or whatever. I would hear about who's sleeping over at whose house and who sat next to who uh, in the lunchroom, and who likes who, and who like likes who, and who thinks they like like who, and who likes them, or who likes likes them back. And this is the chatter that I would get in the, from the back seat of my car, because I also took home another little girl that lived a couple of houses away from us, and so they'd be chattering back and forth about all these various things. And if you look, if you want to see a perfect example of the social instinct, go to a middle school, or go to a high school, and see who's sitting with who, and who who's kissing who and who's playing grab your rear end with who and all this other stuff. So you can see the social instinct. Some of that is the sex instinct too, which we'll get to. But you'll see that instinct in its raw form. Now, if you threaten the way people think of me in the here and now, I will resent you. I will fear you. If you try to take away what I currently have in this area or you try to take away my ambitions for the future, you're going to make me very angry, very upset. 
Everybody likes to be well thought of. Everybody normal likes to be well thought of. So the social instinct is extremely important. Even ancient cavemen, Cro-Magnum man, Peking man, Heidelberg man, uh, Cubs chances of a World Series, even ancient cultures. <laughs> it is said that the Cubs' last World Series parade included mastodons, mammoths. <laughs> but anyway, that aside, um, Cro-Magnum man, Peking man, Heidelberg man, they lived together in groups because instinctively they knew um, Mary, you help Joe. Joe, you and Mary, you run that thing over here, and me and Fred will stand there with our sticks, and we'll beat the thing on the head when he comes through, and then we'll have something to eat, and we'll all split it, right? You can all see that. These instincts are God-given, and therefore very, very important. But if you encroach upon them, you're going to make me scared, you're going to make me angry. If I want to get into a new group after being with the old group, that's my ambitions for the future. If you mess with that, same exact result. You're going to make me angry, you're going to scare me. All fear comes from either you perceived you're going to take away what I have or you're going to interrupt my ambitions for the future. I'm not going to get what I want. That's where all fear comes from and that's where anger comes from. Okay. Uh, underneath the social instinct as a subtopic is self-esteem. Now, more often than not, I am not what I think I am. Try to stay with me on this one. It's confusing. I am what I think you think I am. Okay, so I am what I think you think I am. So if I think you think I'm a pretty good egg, I'll like me. And if I think you think I'm a pretty bad egg, I won't like me. That's the self-esteem part of it. Okay, so we can all see that these are very important instincts. The second of the instincts is the security instinct. The security, the first part of it, is pocketbook. When you do a fifth step and you're listening to a fifth step from somebody or you're doing a fourth step, the two most um, consistent things will be things about finance and romance. Finance and romance. And the first thing in the security instinct is the money part. If you try to take away what I have in this area or if you're trying to interrupt my ambitions for the future, you're going to make me very angry, you're going to make me very upset, and I'm going to have fear and anger around that, which is going to wake up the mental twist. The twist will drive me into the food. I will eat the food, trigger the allergy, <laughs> pass through the well-known stages of a spree, emerging remorseful with a firm resolution not to eat that way again, and I will repeat that cycle over and over and over again. Now... The security instinct also is imbued by God because I do not want to take in $10 and spend $10 or take in 10 and try to spend 20 We live within our means. Now, I'm all for living in a way a day at a time, but I hope I'm not the only person in the room with a life insurance policy. I pay money every month to State Farm so that they will provide money for my daughter upon my demise. I also hope I'm not the only person in the room that puts a little money aside in a savings account. I try to save a little money here, a little money there. I had a terrible relationship with my daughter. For years, she wouldn't even speak to me. 
not because of the divorce. This is something that went on before the divorce, and I don't really believe she knows why she didn't speak to me at all because there was no real reason for it, but in her mind there was. But every month I try as best I can to put some money in what I call the Hannah account. Why? One day my baby may want to get married and she'll come to me and say, Chubby, will you pay for the wedding? And I want to be able to at least help her with that as much as I possibly can. I'm also buying a condo. I'm closing the day after I get home. I'm buying a condo and I'm going to close Monday morning, the 29th of June. And one of the things I love about buying a condo is it'll be something of value I can pass to my child so that I won't do to her what was done to me and leave her with absolutely nothing. So these are things that come from this security instinct. This part, another part of the security instinct is emotional security. And if you upset my emotional security in what I have now or my ambitions for the future, you're going to upset me and get me all angry and scared. And the last part of the security instinct is physical security. Let's just pretend that this microphone was a weapon and you perceived me as being very dangerous. And I was coming at you with this weapon. Not you, Allie. I know you could take me. But <clears throat> the bottom line is, is that if I was coming at you with this weapon to hurt you, you would run away out of fear. And that is imbued into us by our creator because we have physical security as one of our instincts. And that's why you'll read from time to time about mothers and grandmothers lifting cars and lifting uh, uh, telephone poles and stuff because we have this desire to live. We have this instinct to live and to preserve life in the people we love the most. That's coming from the physical security instinct. Now, the last part of the three instincts, the last of the instincts, is the sex instinct. If we didn't have the sex instinct, within about 120 years, there wouldn't be any human beings left on the face of the planet. The human race, in about 100 to 125 years, would cease to exist people would be just nothing. There'd be weeds growing through here eventually, and there'd be God knows what, insects or mammals or whatever there would be, but there wouldn't be human beings running around. So, if we have something in the sex instinct, and this is where your movies come from, your poetry, your, your music, your stories, your everything. If we desire someone and someone else takes them away and they interrupt our ambitions for the future in that area, we're going to resent them, we're going to fear them, and we're going to create a disturbance. And the bottom line is, is that um, this is a very strong instinct. So we have the sex instinct... Don't take away what I currently have. Don't interrupt my ambitions for the future. The security instinct, pocketbook, emotional security, and personal security. The social, uh, the social instinct is what do other people think of me and what do I think of me. These are very, very important. And I tell you these things because <laughs> now we can see where these angers come from, where these emotions, where these feelings come from, so we have a better understanding as to how to fare forth with our step number four. Okay, now let's read the third step promises at the top of 63. Let's go to the top of 63 
And now we're going to do the third step promises. And these are beautiful promises indeed. When we sincerely took such a position, the one just described, all sorts of remarkable things followed. We had a new employer. Being all power, watch your capitals. Being all powerful, he provided what we needed if we kept close to him and performed his work well. Established on such a footing, we became less and less interested in ourselves, our little plans and designs. More and more, we became interested in seeing what we could contribute to life as we felt new power flow in, as we enjoyed peace of mind, as we discovered we could face life successfully, as we became conscious of his presence, we began to lose our fear of today, tomorrow, or the hereafter, we were reborn. Now, in every sense of the word, I am not the same little boy that was born on the 24th of May. I'm on page 63. I am not the same little boy that was born on May 24th, 1954 at Mount Sinai Hospital in Chicago. I have been completely altered, I have been rearranged, and I am not that person at all. I today find myself an honest person. I am today where I find myself, I'm able to accomplish things. I find myself where I am going forward knowing that God will make this okay, knowing that this is going to be all right. Five years ago, I got divorced. It didn't kill me. I had a child that didn't speak to me for years. Now she's just coming around. She's just texting me and sending me little pictures of herself. And she's just communicating with me. She remembered Father's Day this year for the first time in probably 10 years. And I've only been divorced for five years. But I'm just now slowly coming out of it. And I had a sense through it all that that was God. That has nothing to do with me. That he is doing these things. So we have a situation where now we're going to do step three, and step three should take all of three seconds. I had a woman call me not long ago that said, I've been working on step three for three months. I says, my God in heaven, ma'am, what are you doing for three months? You're either ready, you utter the prayer, or you're not ready and don't utter the prayer. But for God's sakes, what could you be doing for three months Here's the third step. We were now at step three, page 63, middle of the page. Many of us said to our maker as we understood him, God, you can say this with me if you're ready to do steps four through 12, but if you're not ready to do steps four through 12, please don't, because this is what we do when this is the formal terms of surrender. Remember I told you that three and four are the most misunderstood steps? Three is just the formal terms of surrender. That's all it is. It's an agreement to go on with steps four through 12. There's three frogs and they're sitting on a log. One of the frogs makes a decision to jump off the log. How many frogs are on the log? Three, because a mere decision to jump off the log does nothing. The frog in order to jump off the log must take Action, thank you, very good, must take action or it's going to get splinters and it's behind. God, I offer myself to thee, come on, to build with me and to do with me as thou wilt. Relieve me of the bondage of self that I may better do thy will. Take away my difficulties that victory over them may bear witness to those I would help of thy power 
thy love and thy way of life. May I do thy will always. Keep coming. No, we thought well before taking this step, making sure we were ready that we could at last abandon ourselves utterly to him. And what mechanism are we going to use that is going to abandon us utterly to God? And that is 4 through 12. 4 through 12 is how we are going to abandon ourselves to the God of our understanding. And that's just what this means. Now, I want you to honestly ask yourself, and if, you, if the answer to this question is yes, I want you to see me after we're done. As tired as I'm going to be, I want you to see me when we're done. Is there anything in step three that is so complicated that you feel you can't do it? It's a decision. You say the prayer and you move on to step four. It's that simple. Don't overthink it. Don't overcomplicate it. You, you, you're ready? Say the prayer. And what do you do? You grab a pencil and a piece of paper and you start doing step four. You don't have to go to Yale or Columbia. You don't have to go to Dartmouth or Harvard to do this. You can do this with a fourth grade education. It's all it is. Okay. <clears throat> Wait a minute. Roanne. Okay, thanks. We found it very desirable, 63, to take this spiritual step with an understanding person such as our wife, best friend, or spiritual advisor. But it is better to meet God alone than with one who might misunderstand. The wording was, of course, quite optional so long as we expressed the idea, voicing it without reservation. This was only a beginning, though if honestly and humbly made in effect, sometimes a very great one was felt at once. So step three is going to be described as a decision and a beginning. They should make water without ice. Okay. All right. Next. doesn't say in a year. doesn't say in a month. doesn't say in three weeks. It says, next, we launched on a course of vigorous thinking. I mean, vigorous hoping. Vigorous sitting on my rear-ended meetings. <laughs> you can't get this by osmosis. I know. Uh, you can't get this by osmosis. You can't sit on your rear end in meetings and hope to absorb it through the chair and through your rear. You've got to take action. Next, we launched on a course of vigorous action. I love that word. The first step of which is a personal house cleaning. Wait a minute. Why does it say the first step? We're on step four. Because this is the first of the action steps. This is the first of the action step, which many of us have never attempted. Though our decision, step three, was a vital and crucial step, it could have little permanent effect unless at once followed by a strenuous effort to face and be rid of the things in ourselves which had been blocking us. Our liquor was but a symptom, so we had to get down to causes and conditions. Okay, so what is it saying? It is saying the things that we have been saying here all day. That liquor is not the problem. Liquor is a symptom. Food is not the problem. Food is a symptom. Food is the answer to the problem. And the problem is the buildup of emotions, which leads to intense pain. The pain goes to the mental twist, wakes it up. Mental twist says, eat a Kit Kat bar, Chubby. Chubby says, no way I'm eating a Kit Kat bar. Mental twist says, eat the Kit Kat bar, Chubby. Chubby eventually eats the Kit Kat bar because the emotional will win out in a walk every time in a, in a dispute against the intelligent. I eat the Kit Kat saying I'm only going to eat one. 
I eat one, and what do I trigger? The physical allergy. Very good. I trigger the allergy, pass through the well-known stages of a spree, emerging remorseful with a firm resolution not to eat that way again, and I will repeat that cycle over and over and over again, the mind telling me it's okay and the body ensuring that it's not. You know why I repeat that about a million times? Because everyone in this room has a built-in forgetter on that situation. You've got a built-in forgetter called the mental blank spot, which prevents you from remembering this pain. You will forget it in a minute. <clears throat> there, oh, though our decision was a uh, strenuous effort to... Therefore, thanks, we started upon a personal inventory. This was step four. A business which takes no regular inventory usually goes broke. Taking a commercial inventory is a fact-finding and fact-facing process. It is an effort to discover the truth about the stock in trade. One subject is to disclose damaged or unsaleable goods, to get rid of them promptly and without regret. If the owner of the business is to be successful, he cannot fool himself about values. We did exactly the same thing with our lives. We took stock honestly. First, we searched out the flaws in our makeup, which caused our failure. So in other words, you don't need an inventory of your assets. You don't need an inventory of the fact that you're a great piano player or a wonderful listener or you remember things. Or That's not what we're talking about here. We're looking at the flaws which caused our failure. And you've got people that are doing inventories of their assets and doing inventories of their hamsters' uh, bathroom habits and all kinds of other things. You don't need that. You just need to stick to what it says in the book. Okay. Just think of it this way. I've got a business, and I've got Apple computers from 1999 on the shelf, and they're taking up a lot of room. Nobody's buying them. I have to take an inventory, and I have to get rid of them so I can have more shelf space for the Apple computers that were manufactured in 2015. When is that computer obsolete? The minute it comes off the assembly line. And I've got to get these things out of there. And I've got to get the new stock in trade because this is holding me up. One object is to disclose. Being convinced. Uh, being convinced. Uh, oh, mid-paragraph, sorry. I hate when I stop in the middle of the paragraph. Okay. Being convinced that self manifested in various ways was what had defeated us, we considered its common manifestations. Now, let's talk about resentment. Resentment comes from two old, old words. Re, which means to do again. Repaint, rewrite, re-roof. It means to do again. Sentiment comes from an old word, Latin word, sentiri, which means to feel. To re-feel old hurts, old injuries, old situations. Now, what I found out about me is something I didn't like to find out. I have a television at home, but I also have a DVD player and I have a VHS cassette player. And I love the Oregon Ducks. I lived in Oregon for nine years. And I love the Ducks. And when the Ducks 
won the Rose Bowl this year against Florida State, I was absolutely elated by that victory. They later caved in against Ohio State, but that's for another convention. <laughs> but they beat Florida State and Jameis Winston and all those guys in the Rose Bowl, and I was thrilled. And so I watched the Rose Bowl again and again and again and again, and I love it. I love a happy ending. Oh, I love a happy ending, you know? I could tell you what play was coming. I could tell you what the announcers are going to say. I could tell you what commercials are on, what commercials go where. I could tell you the whole thing. Because my DVR player at my house in Scottsdale has something I don't have. Fidelity. What does fidelity mean? Fidelity means consistency, truth, and truth. I don't have consistency and truth. I will take an injury from a person and think about it and I'll change the reality of it just a little bit. I'll make your part a little more dastardly and my part just a little more innocent. <clears throat> then I'll think about it again. And I'll make your part a little more dastardly and my part a little more honest and, and pure. And then I'll think about it again and I'll make your part even more dastardly and my part a little more innocent. And if you give me enough time to think on that and dwell on that, you give me enough time. <clears throat> I was standing there doing nothing and you came along and you did me dirt. And that's the way my mind goes. And that's the way my mind goes and I'm not alone in that because I love a good resentment what is the payoff to a resentment? I do not have to take stock for my own life. For if you wouldn't have done that to me, I wouldn't be in the situation I'm in. And if you hadn't have come along and done me dirt, I'd have a better life and it's all your fault. A resentment allows me to abdicate responsibility for my own life and blame you. And that is the payoff to a resentment. That's why I love them so much. I nurture them. I nurse them. I feed them. I clothe them. I entertain them. In ancient lore, it is said by the son to the father, are there really two wolves within each of us? And the father says, yes. One is the good wolf, and one is the bad wolf. And the son asks the father, which one will survive? And the father says to the son, the one you feed. The one you feed will survive. So if I'm going to spend my time in resentment, I'm not going to feel very good because people that are full of resentments and people that are full of fear don't feel very good, do they? And in that pain, it causes the pain, the emotional buildup. And what happens then? It wakes up the mental twist. The mental twist will send us reeling into the food. We'll eat the food. We'll trigger the allergy. We'll pass through the well-known stages of a spree, emerging remorseful with a firm resolution not to eat that way again. And we will repeat that cycle over and over and over again 
the mind telling us it's okay to eat the food while the body ensures that it is not okay. And that is the cycle of death that we have. Now, I hear some of you talking, and I hear awful good. I hear some of you saying, but I've got some resentments against my mother, or I've got some resentments against my father, or I've got some resentments against different entities where I had no part because we're about to look at our own part. Now, statistically speaking, there are people in this room that have been molested sexually. Statistically speaking, there are people in this room that have been raped. Statistically speaking, there are people in this room that have had horrible injustices thrust upon them as children that they had no part in. On behalf of the human race, I'm sorry. Profoundly so. I am sorry. I am sorry that there are people who of their free will make choices to inflict pain and mayhem on the lives of other innocent people who are often children, little children. And I am sorry that that happened to you. And you may be saying to yourself, what part did I have in this resentment? What part did I have in this injustice? I know a little bit about that too. I was raised by a man who had some injustice done in his life. I know about that stuff too because I sat at his feet all my life with only one wish, that I could comfort him and make him feel safe in his skin so that maybe tonight he wouldn't have a nightmare that people are going to come and kill us. Because in his mind that wasn't a nightmare or that wasn't something he saw in a movie. It was something the sounds of which, the sights of which, the smells of which, and the unbelievable reality of which were his. And I know a little bit about that too. Are we going to let it kill us? Are we ready to put it down? Maybe we had no part in the rape. Maybe we had no part in the molestation. Maybe we had no part in being abandoned by people that were supposed to care for us as biological parents. Maybe we had parents with mental illness. I know a little bit about that too. Maybe we had parents that just were not equipped to be parents. They did the best they could, but they couldn't carry a load heavier than their arms would allow them to, and so they didn't do a very good job. What are we going to do? Are we going to let them kill us now? And a lot of those people that hurt you, a lot of those people that harmed you, they're dead and buried but yet they're reaching up from the grave and they've got you by the yin-yang and they're controlling what you eat now and where you, what you think and where you go and what you do and they've still got control over your life. It's time to let it go. It's time to leave retribution to God and it's time for us to be emancipated from the chains, from the bars, from the jail of the hellish resentment of our of our situations. We deserve it. This is not a dress rehearsal. This is life. This is it. I have wasted decades of my life eating Kit Kats and M&Ms with peanuts. I have wasted decades of my life wishing and hoping for something that, that 
I could just be anyone else. Let me be you. Let me be anyone else, not be me. I just don't want to be me because being me is hell. I've wasted time doing that. This illness took from me decades of my life and I'll be damned if I'm going to give the son of a bitch one more minute. I know. I know. I'm not going to give him one more minute. And I have a proven, workable method by which I can give it to God. And God is powerful and merciful and perfect and personal so that he will allow me to live in the face of these things. Let's take a look at the bottom of 64. Resentment is the number one offender. It destroys more alcoholics than anything else. From its stem all forms of spiritual disease. For we have not only been, we have been mentally and physically ill. For we have been not only mentally and physically ill, we have been spiritually sick. When the spiritual malady is overcome, we straighten out mentally and physically. In dealing with resentments, we set them on paper. We're going to do a four-column inventory for resentments, four-column for fear, five-column for sex with a side assignment. There's no reason to complicate this. Column one, who or what do you resent? Now, you're not always going to have a who in what you resent. I resented strongly the old expression, blood is thicker than water. I don't like when people say that around me because when they say that around me, it always left me out. I don't have aunts, uncles, brothers, sisters, cousins, grandparents. I don't have that. And when my parents died, I didn't have another blood relative in the world for decades. Then I got married and then I have a daughter. She wouldn't talk to me. So when people would say blood is thicker than water, it always made me feel like a loser. It made me feel left out. I had a resentment against the Chicago public school system. When I was a senior in high school, long before I was a senior in high school, crap, uh, when I was long before a senior in high school, I couldn't fit in my skin. I couldn't fit in the desk. I couldn't fit in my clothes. Nobody asked me if there's anything they could do to help me. Nobody said, let's talk about this. All right, maybe it wasn't their job, but it would have been nice if they would have asked me It would have been nice if they had reached out to me and said, my God, what's going on with you? Is there something we could do to help you? It would have been nice, but it didn't happen. Okay, fine. So who or what you resent is not always going to be a who. Okay? Column one, who or what do you resent? We listed people, institutions, or principles with whom we were angry. We asked ourselves why we were angry. Column two, What did they do to you? 19 words or less. Do not write me a novel. Do not write me a novel about this. I don't want War and Peace or Hiawatha. Just give me the headlines of what they did to you or what what they didn't do for you or something. We We asked ourselves why we were angry also includes the third column, which is what basic instinct or instincts are affected. And we just went through them, security, sex, and uh, social. 
In most cases, it was found that our self-esteem, our pocketbooks, our ambitions, our personal relationships, including sex, were hurt or threatened. So we were sore. We were burned up. On our grudge list, we set opposite each name our injuries. Was it our self-esteem, our security, our ambitions, our personal or sex relations, which had been interfered with? We were usually as definite as this example. We're only going to go through one or two of these and we need to move on. Mr. Brown. Why am I mad at Mr. Brown? His attention to my wife. Whoa, what does that affect? My sex relations and my self-esteem fear. Why is self-esteem and fear in there if Mr. Brown is hitting on my wife? Because what are people going to think of me if he takes my wife? And what am I going to think of myself? What's the fear here? See, things are usually more pervasive. The fear here is if he takes my wife, she's probably going to take my boat. She's probably going to take my house. She's going to take my car. She's going to take my kids. So there's more to it than just a very simple kind of unilateral thing. It's usually a little more deep than that. So if he hits on my wife and my wife decides to run off with him, I'm going to lose more than just my wife. There's going to be other things too. Mr. Brown told my wife of my mistress. Well, he's worried about Brown hitting on his wife, but Mr. Lucky Pants over there has got a mistress. <clears throat> okay. That affects my sex relations, self-esteem, fear. Same thing. Brown may get my job at the office. What does that affect? Well, it affects my security, money, self-esteem. What, what am I going to think of myself if he gets my job at the office? And then fear. What are people going to think of me? What's my wife going to think of me? What are my kids going to think of me? What are my parents going to think of me? My relatives think of me if he gets my job at the office. So you can see how pervasive this is. Now, this is very simple. We're going to get to the fourth column in a couple of pages here. This is very simple. I doubt, seriously, if there's anybody in this room that lacks the IQ or lacks the, the knowledge how to do these columns. You know who you're mad at. You know who you're mad at. I don't have to tell you who you're mad at. Okay? Mrs. Jones, she's a nut. She snubbed me. So here he's worried in the other one that this guy's hitting on his wife and he's got a mistress and that ain't enough for him. He's hitting on Mrs. Jones. Remember there was a song years ago, Me and Mrs. Jones? Yeah, remember that? <laughs> Maybe they got it from here. You never know. She's a nut. She snubbed me. I know, I know that feeling. She committed her husband for drinking. He's my friend. She's a gossip. It affects my personal relationships, self-esteem, fear. She told my wife she committed her husband for drinking. And if he, she committed her husband for drinking, maybe my wife will get that idea that that's okay too, and she'll have me committed for drinking also. So I don't want that getting out. So you can see how these go. Let's go to the bottom of 65 for the sake of time. We went back through our lives, nothing counted but thoroughness and honesty. What word do you not see there? Perfection. Stop trying to do the perfect fourth step. God is not going to hang your fourth step on his refrigerator. Just do the damn thing. Just do the damn thing and get it behind you. Right? See? Okay. Just do the damn thing and get this thing behind you. you just, there's nothing in there about perfect. 
We, when we were finished, we considered it carefully. The first thing apparent was that the world and its people were often quite wrong. To conclude that others were wrong was as far as most of us ever got. The usual outcome was that people continued to wrong us and we stayed sore. Sometimes it was remorse and then we were sore at ourselves. But the more we fought and tried to have our own way, the worse matters got. We were flies in the spider web. The more we tried to fight our way out, the worse it got. The usual, okay, sometimes it was remorse and then we were sore at ourselves. The more we fought and tried to have our own way, the worse matters got. As in war, the victor only seemed to win. Our moments of triumph were short-lived. It is plain that a life which includes deep resentment leads, excuse me, only to futility and unhappiness. To the precise extent that we permit these, do we squander the hours that might have been worthwhile. But with the alcoholic whose hope is the maintenance and growth of a spiritual experience, this business of resentment is infinitely grave. We found that it is fatal. And why is it fatal? Get ready, here it comes again. Because to sit in these resentments is to build up emotions. To build up emotions, I'm not going to feel very good. When I don't feel good and these emotions are building up, they will knock on the door of the mental twist and the mental twist will say, I know how to make them feel better. Eat a Kit Kat bar, chubby. And then the intelligent part of my brain says, no way. And then the emotional part of my brain says, eat the Kit Kat bar, chubby. And the intelligent part of my brain says, no way. And then the emotional says, eat the Kit Kat bar, chubby. And I eat it. Because the emotional will win every time against the intelligence. And I need to put out the fire. I need to stop feeling this way. I can't bear feeling this way any longer. And I eat the Kit Kat bar. And then I trigger the physical allergy. And that means at the grocery store at Scottsdale and Shea, or the one over on 92nd and Shea, the good one, right? (laughs) The one over there, the candy bars are shaking on the shelf because they know their life expectancy has just dwindled to seconds because that's the monster inside of me. And that's why this is fatal. Does he have to come out and hit you over the head again? It's fatal. Do the work. It's simple. It's, it's, it's really nothing. Just do the work. The insanity of alcohol returns and we drink again with us to drink is to die, right? For when harboring, oh wait, when harboring such feelings, thank you, Ro. When harboring such feelings, we shut ourselves off from the sunlight of the spirit. The insanity of alcohol returns and we drink again and with us to drink is to die. If we were to live, we had to be free of anger. The grouch and the brainstorm were not for us. The grouch is the guy that's always mad, and the brainstorm is the guy that's very volatile. He could be the nicest guy in the world, and all of a sudden, they're just coming out of left field with all this anger. The grouch and the brainstorm. The occasionally uh, angry guy, but it's really bad, is the brainstorm, and the grouch is a guy that's always mad. They may be the dubious luxury of normal men, but for alcoholics, these things are poison, and I'll spare you going through that again. We we turned back to the list for it held the key to the future. We, we were prepared to look at it from an entirely different angle. 
we began to see that the world and its people really dominated us. They dominated me. I thought I was so cool. I thought I was in control. I thought I was hip, slick, and cool, and smart. And I thought I was tough. I thought I was a tough guy. I thought, I'll just beat you down. I'll get you. I'll get you. Don't worry about that. I'm going to get my way. No, they dominated me. And the more I put up that bravado, and the more I put up that mask, the more they beat me down. And I beat myself down, too. We were prepared to look at it from an entirely different angle. We began to see that the world and its people really dominated us. In that state, the wrongdoings of others, fancied or real, had power to actually kill. How could we escape? We saw that these resentments must be mastered, but how? We could not wish them away any more than alcohol. This was our course. We realized that the people who wronged us were perhaps spiritually sick. Though we did not like their symptoms and the way these disturbed us, they, like ourselves, were sick too. We asked God to help us show them the same tolerance, pity, and patience that we would cheerfully grant a sick friend. When a person offended, we said to ourselves, here's your sick man prayer. This is a sick man. How can I be helpful to him? God, save me from being angry. Thy will be done. This is your sick man prayer. You can't handle, if you're a compulsive overeater, you can't handle anger. Stop trying to get in the ring with the world champion resentment and beat him down with a series of your jabs and your punches. You can't do it. If you could do it, you wouldn't be sitting in this room. You cannot think that this time I'm going to get in there and duke it out with resentment and fear and I'm going to come out on top. You're going to be stuffing Kit Kat bars in your mouth before you can say Jackie Robinson. You're not going to know what hit you. This sick man prayer is vital to, your, to my survival. I understand this person is sick. I get it. God, thy will save me from being angry, which admits to God and to myself that I don't want to be angry because I love being angry. I love it. I'm addicted to that anger. I'm addicted to resentment because I don't have to look at my life. When I've got a good pissed off on, I don't have to look at me. And I can blame you. That's the payoff to the resentment. We've talked about that umpteen times. We avoid, going on, we avoid retaliation or argument. We wouldn't treat sick people that way. If we do, we destroy our chance of being helpful. We cannot be helpful to all people, but at least God will show us how to take a kindly and tolerant view of each and every one. Now here's your fourth column to the resentment section. Here's your last column. <laughs> Referring to our list again, putting out of our minds the wrongs others had done, we resolutely looked at our own mistakes. Uh-oh, I don't want to do that and I've never done that. I want to look at your mistakes. I don't want to look at mine. Where had we been selfish, dishonest, self-seeking, and frightened? Notice anger isn't in there. Why? It's assumed. It's a resentment inventory. That's why it's not in there. It's, it's your resentment inventory. You're, we're assuming you're angry, okay? So what did you do to set this in motion and what character defects were brought to the surface that forced you to take or omit those actions which set the ball in motion? Though a situation had not been entirely our fault, we tried to disregard the other person entirely. <clears throat> 
Where were we to blame? The inventory was ours, not the other man's. When we saw our faults, we listed them. We placed them before us in black and white. We admitted our wrongs honestly and were willing to set these matters straight. Notice that the word fear is bracketed alongside the difficulties with Mr. Brown, Mrs. Jones, and the employer. And the wife, I'm sorry. This short word somehow touches about every aspect of our lives. It was an evil and corroding thread. The fabric of our existence was shot through with it. It set in motion trains of circumstances which brought us misfortune we felt we didn't deserve. But did not we ourselves set the ball rolling? You bet we did. Sometimes we think fear ought to be classified with stealing. It seems to cause more trouble. So we're done with the resentment inventory and we're now in the fear inventory. Now, basically, the resentment inventory is column one. Who or what are you mad at? Column two. What did they do to you? 19 words or less. Why do I choose 19 words? Because that's the example Bill gives. No resentment gets more than 19 words to explain it. So that's, let's use that as a guideline. Column three. What basic instincts or instincts are affected? I'm a little mad at the guy that put all the ice in here. Okay. Column four, what action did you take or omit that set the, ball in roll, set the ball rolling and what character defects were brought to the surface? Now, honestly, don't answer me now because we can't get sidetracked because we're pushing time. Honestly, is there something that we just described that is so complicated, that is so out there, that is so esoteric that you can't do it? Or what are you mad at? What did they do to you? What part of self is affected? What's your role? Now, as a sponsor, I'm probably not going to mess with column one or two. I leave those alone. I wasn't there. I don't know. You say so-and-so did this. I'll take your word for it. I wasn't there. Column three, I might put a little bit of... You're going to start to see patterns, too. And when you do, you're going to be amazed. You talk about an inventory, you're going to know why it's called an inventory because you're just going to see patterns and patterns and patterns. Column four, what did you do to set it in motion? What character defects were brought to the surface? I'll probably mess with column four more than any other column if I'm a sponsor. Column four is where I'm going to hold your feet to the fire just a little bit more so you can see your part. Right? Right. Okay. So we're going to hold your feet to the fire there just a bit. Okay, let's go to the fear inventory. We're at the top of 68. We reviewed, oh, a blessing on you and your ancestors and all the generations of your house. May they know nothing but happiness. I'll kill that in about two minutes. Okay, now... Let's go to the fear inventory. Oh, blessing on your heart. May the team of your choice... Thank you, thank you. See, my basic instincts of life are getting, are getting there. Thank you. Okay. And if, unless they're playing the Oregon Ducks, may the team of your choice win. We reviewed our fears thoroughly. We put them on paper. Column one. Who or what did you fear? Do you fear? There's no resentment in connection here. If you have a resentment, it goes in the resentment inventory. No resentment, fears. I, want, I don't want to die. I fear getting sick. I fear running out of money. I fear getting caught by the uh, IRS, whatever it is. Whatever it is you fear goes in this section here. 
We ask ourselves why we had them. Column two, why do you have the fear? We asked ourselves, excuse me, wasn't it because self-reliance failed us? Self-reliance was good as far as it went, but it didn't go far enough. Some of us once had great confidence, but it didn't fully solve the fear problem or any other. When it made us cocky, it was worse. Perhaps there's a better way. We think so. For we are now on a different basis, the basis of trusting and relying upon God. We trust infinite God rather than our finite selves. We are in the world to play the role he assigns, just to the extent that we do as we think he would have us and humbly rely on him. Does he enable us to match calamity with serenity? Column one in the fear inventory. Who or what do you fear? Column two. Why do you fear it? Column three. What basic instincts are brought to the surface in column four? What part, if any, do you play in this fear and what defects of character cause you to take or omit the action? God is my judge. God is my judge. I had a guy. He, I was sponsoring him for a while. He, he really feared the IRS. He didn't resent them, but he feared them. He just feared that they were going to come and lock him up. And I couldn't understand why he... He didn't have this in his resentment. He didn't have it. He didn't pay his taxes for years. Well, of course they're going to come and lock you up. But he, he says, well, I just didn't have the money. I says, I don't care whether you have the money or not. You've got to go to them and you've got to, you've got to sit down with them. But, and that happens. You know, we just get so clouded in our own thinking. We never apologize to anyone for depending upon our Creator. We can laugh at those who think spirituality the way of weakness. Paradoxically, it is the way of strength. The verdict of the ages is that faith means courage. All men of faith have courage. They trust their God. We never apologize for God. Instead, we let Him demonstrate through us what He can do. We ask Him to remove our fear and direct our attention to what He would have us be at once. We commence to outgrow fear. Now let's talk about sex. Take it easy. We're not going to have any demonstrations of how to. We're just going to talk about sex. Who uh, in column four in the fear inventory? What did you do to bring it about? And what character defects were brought to the surface in the action you either took or you omitted? I'm at the bottom of 68, but before we continue, let's talk about this for just a minute. We're going to do a sex inventory, which is going to be five columns rather than four, and there's a side assignment. One of the areas that we can cut very deep with another person and hurt them and humiliate them is in this area of sex. How do we hurt each other? What do we do? Now, oftentimes, when we talk about that, the first thing we think of, and most of us think of, is cheating. And I stood in my kitchen in May of 2010, and I was informed that my wife, then wife, was asking me, demanding from me a divorce. It was about money, and it was about the fact that she had fallen in love with someone that she met through her work. So there's cheating. That's one of the ways that we hurt each other in this area of sex. But let's look at some of the other ways that we harm and hurt each other that are maybe not as overt. Maybe we're in a committed relationship. Now, when I say a committed relationship, I am not talking about each and every person that you've ever slept with that you need to inventory. If you've hurt them or harmed them, certainly they need to be put down. 
I believe, and this is me, you can believe whatever you want, this is me. This is not OA's opinion, this is not AA's opinion, this is not Roseanne's opinion, it's my opinion. I believe that God gave us the sex instinct so that we could enjoy sex with another person. Be they the same sex or be they the opposite sex is not a matter of my discussion, nor do I have an opinion on such things. It is not my business. That's why they have doors on the bedroom, because what goes on in there is not my business. And if we are in a situation like that, God also gave us this instinct so that we could reproduce ourselves. Although not all sex is with the intention of reproduction, it's one of the possibilities. It doesn't have to be. Uh, what we do all the time, but it's one of the possibilities. So with that in mind, that it's for enjoyment or and or reproduction. It does not have, there, I'm not saying and reproduction, I'm saying and or reproduction. Big difference. So I just want to be understood there. Okay? With that in mind, let's look at some of the things. Maybe we're in a relationship with somebody and they are complaining because we are asking them to do something in that room that they'd really rather not do. We're making demands upon them that they'd really rather not acquiesce to. Perhaps we're in a committed relationship and we're the ones that need to give in just a little bit more so that we can make the harmony in the physical end of our relationship just a little bit better. Perhaps we're using sex for something other than what it was intended for. Instead of using it to enjoy or using it to recreate, we are using it to get even with another person. Let's just say for the sake of this scenario that I'm Harlan and I know my friend's name is Fred. And there's a girl, let's call her Mary, and she is the object of Fred's attention. He really likes Mary. Somebody shut that off, please. Okay. So he really likes Mary. Now, I'm not much of a, of a guy to attract women necessarily, but let's just say I'm going over there to put the moves on Mary, to try to have sex with Mary, not because I have the slightest interest in her, but because I'm just trying to get even with Fred because he made me mad. That's using sex for something other than what it was intended for. Maybe I'm using another person just for attention. I'm letting them buy me lunch, buy me dinner, buy me a movie ticket, entertain me. I care nothing for them. I just don't want to be alone. That is another form of harm too. I had a friend who lived on the West Coast and he bought this woman lunch at his office for years she allowed him to buy him lunch, her lunch, every day for years. He never took her out. He never went on a date with her. He had a giant crush on her. But in order to save her own money, she allowed him to pick up the check at lunch every day for years. That is using your God-given sex instincts for something other than what it was intended for. So you see, you don't have to take off your clothes to misuse this instinct. What if I'm using sex or God-given sex powers because I know one of my bosses has a crush on me? 
crazy as that sounds, but maybe my boss has a crush on me, so I'm acting in a flirtatious way with him or her so as to propagate this crush so that I can have better sense of my security within the job. Enjoyment has nothing to do with that. Recreation has nothing to do with that. So you see, these are some but not all of the ways that we can use our God-given sex powers to hurt, harm, injure another person. So let's take a look with that in mind. And again, you shouldn't have to go to Yale or Harvard to do this. You know from your life where this has come up. Okay, for those listening at home, that's the sound of me drinking water. Okay, now about sex. Yay! Okay, Padma 68. Many of us needed an overhauling there, but above all, we tried to be sensible on this question. It's so easy to get way off the track. Here we find human opinions running to extremes, absurd extremes perhaps. One set of voices cry that sex is a lust of our lower nature, a base necessity of procreation. Then we have the voices who cry for sex and more sex, who bewail the institution of marriage, who think that most of the troubles of the race are traceable to sex causes. They think we do not have enough of it or it isn't the right kind. They see its significance everywhere. One school would allow man no flavor for his fare, and the other would have us all on a straight pepper diet. We want to stay out of this controversy. We do not want to be the arbiter of anyone's sex conduct. We all have sex problems. We'd hardly be human if we didn't. But what can we do about them? We reviewed our own conduct over the years past. Where had we been selfish, dishonest, or inconsiderate? Whom had we hurt? Did we unjustifiably arouse jealousy, suspicion, or bitterness? Where were, excuse me, where were we at fault? What should we have done instead? We got this all down on paper and looked at it. Sex inventory, column one. Who did you hurt? Unless you have, are you accustomed to having sex with animals or trees, it'll be a who. Who did you hurt? Column two, what did you do or omit doing? Column three, column two, what did you do to them or omit doing? Column three, what basic instinct of life was affected? Column four, what character defects were brought to the surface in the harm you did in column two? And column five, what should you have done instead? Column one, Who did you hurt? Column two, what did you do to them or not do? Column three, basic instinct. Column four, what defects of character were brought to the surface in the harm that you did in column two? And column five, what should you have done instead? You got that? Come on. For what character defects were brought to the surface that cause you to take or omit those actions in column two? Got it? Now we're going to do a sexual ideal. Now what that does not mean is I want a brunette and this is the shape of her this and this is... No, that's not what we're talking about. That's not what we're talking about. I went on my first date with a girl when I was 35 years of age. Column one, 
You need that again? Column one, who did you hurt? Alice, column one, who did you hurt? Column two, what did you do to them? Or omit doing. Column three, what basic instincts were affected? Column four, what defects of character were brought to the surface? And column five, what should you have done instead? Are we there? Okay, Al. Okay. Moving along. By the tape. By the whatever you call it. Okay. When I was 35 years of age, I went to an OA dinner. We used to have uh, New Year's Eve dinners in Evanston. And uh, I went to an OA dinner and I was asked out on a date by a girl there for the first time in my life. Never successfully asked out a girl and no girl ever asked me out until that day. And I dated, I went out with her and we had a good time. And she's great. She's, I'm still friends with her. She's awesome. She's an awesome human being. Still is. And uh, we started dating. Boy, there were things I didn't know. It was the first, first girlfriend I ever had in my whole life. I was 35 years of age, and I had less experience than barnyard animals. I had, less ex- I had nothing. I had absolutely no skills. I had absolutely no knowledge. I mean, I was a babe in the woods. And there's two things in sports you can't fake, speed and experience. And I lacked experience and I lacked anything else that was inherent to being in a relationship. I never went through the things as a teenager that other boys went through so that they could perfect their craft. I never went through my college years or my high school years or anything dating girls. I never did those things, so how was I supposed to know? You can watch all the movies and all the things that you want to watch, but there's no substitute for actually doing them yourself. And so I incurred a lot of her resentment and frustration because I was supposed to know things in the language of love that I did not know. And then she broke up with me. And for about a year and a half, I didn't go out with anybody. And um, then it was a Region 5 convention in Lake Geneva, Wisconsin. One of the windiest days I've ever experienced in my entire life. I was, I was one of the speakers at that convention. And I was driving up to Lake Geneva in a howling wind. Unbelievably cold. It was a November day. My God, was it cold. And I had the heat going full blast. And I was still freezing in the car. And I was heavy then. And uh, I lost a lot of weight. But I got up there. And there was this girl there that I had known from meetings. And I knew her to be a married woman. I knew her to be a married gal. And she was talking to me and I was talking to her. And it came out that her husband had committed suicide. About a year or two prior to this convention, he committed suicide. Okay. And on Sunday, when you wouldn't do this now, she left me one of her checkbook deposit slips with her phone number on there and said, call me. So, of course, I didn't. And she finally called me. And we started going out. And about a month into, this is November of... 91. 
And by December the 20th of 92, we were married. And we were married. And from the very, very beginning of the relationship, I was walking on eggshells. I was scared to death of her. If she was happy with me, the world was my little oyster. Everything was groovy. Everything was wonderful. And if she was upset with me, everything was horrible and dark and dingy and horrible. It was just horrible. And our sex life was not good either. Um, And we had a lot of problems. But because I didn't have any previous relationship experience, I didn't know what my friends were telling me. And that is, they were trying to get my attention and say, whoa, 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 take it easy there, chubby. This is, are you sure about this? Well, she wanted to marry me. I was in. I was marrying her. As long as she was okay with it, I was going to do it. And I was in because I finally caught a fish. I wasn't throwing it back. I finally caught a fish. I was not going to throw it back. And so if this girl wants to marry me and she's passing the gender test, I am in. I am totally in. And in this relationship, in this marriage, and even before it was a marriage, in the relationship, I was extremely uh, immature, still am. Uh, I was extremely unknowledgeable, still am. And I was extremely scared of her. And I could not be who I was. And one of the things I learned from this marriage is, I'm going to be who I am. I'm not going to hurt you deliberately. I'm not going to say things that are going to hurt you deliberately. I may say things that will hurt you. But I'm going to express an opinion. Because from the very beginning of this relationship, I abdicated my own humanity. And whatever she decided, wherever she decided, we were good. As long as she was happy, I was happy. And I learned that, that respect and love are Siamese twins that cannot be separated. And when somebody doesn't respect you, they cannot love you. It is impossible to love somebody that you do not respect. And very, very early on in the relationship, before it was a marriage, I became the child and she became the mother that I never had. And I mistook her anger and her tempestuous rage with being strong. And I knew that I was weak. So I perceived her as being very, very strong. And I let her and encouraged her to make every single decision in that Because I feared not of upsetting her, but I did not want to take any responsibility for decisions. So if I didn't take, if I didn't make a decision, I couldn't be held accountable for it. So you couldn't blame me for anything. You don't like the car you bought, Kishmir and Tuchus. It's your decision. You bought the car. You did what you did, and I am not responsible. And that's not a way to be either. So I learned over time, if I ever get married again, or if I'm ever lucky enough to be in a relationship again, which I don't. Uh, not because I don't want to be, because I don't, I don't have that pot that you seem to want. But anyway, that aside, <laughs> that aside, all right, moving on, we're pushing for time here. Moving on, we're pushing for time. I learned that I am going to express my opinion in a nice way. You want the red car? I really like the blue one better. It's just a little more expensive, but I think we can swing it, but it really gives us some advantages. You like that house? I like that house. And that doesn't mean that I'm going to get my way in all situations. But what it means is if I'm ever lucky enough to be in another relationship, I'm going to be an adult in that relationship and not a child. 
to the very best of my ability, I am going to get up in the morning and I'm going to meditate and I'm going to pray and then I'm going to be the adult in the relationship. I'm not going to be the child because there are things also, and I had a platonic marriage. I was married 17 and a half years. I might have had sex with this woman 20 times. We got, we got pregnant the very only time we tried. We tried to get pregnant, and within like four minutes, we were expecting a baby. I mean, it was just that fast. We tried to get pregnant, and about two to three weeks went by, and sure enough, uh, it was a Monday night, and I came home, and we, oh boy, we were making money at that time. Uh, I came home, it was a Monday night, and I was going to the AA meeting, and uh, she informed me that she was indeed pregnant. It wasn't even a couple of weeks, and boom, we were just off to the races. Uh, and the bottom line is, is that um, she missed her thing, and we knew right away. It was just boom, 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 and, and that was it. I would say that probably the last eight or nine years of that 17 and a half year marriage, if we touched each other at all, is because we bumped against each other in the hallway. That was it. We slept in the same bed, but all we did was sleep in the same bed. Well, there are also things you don't do to your mother. They have nasty names for people that do that to their mother. And she was the mom. She wasn't the wife. She was my mom. And it was not a good situation. And five years ago, it ended in divorce, which I didn't want the divorce. I felt very horrible about that situation. And there's someone in this building, and I don't know where he is, and there's another person in this building that were kind of right with me through all of it. I don't know what he is. But anyway, it doesn't matter. But <clears throat> there's someone at this, at this convention that was very instrumental in seeing me through every second of it. And I remember calling him 10 15 times a day uh, with just the simplest little things. And he would just, he, he exercised the most unbelievable amount of patience. He exercised the most unbelievable uh, patience and he would be dealing with the same thing for months and months and months and months with me because things with me don't just bounce off me. They, you know, I absorb them and I keep going with them. And he had to really exercise, he had to really practice his patience. So when we talk about the sexual ideal, when we talk about the sexual ideal, this is what we're talking about. We're not talking about I want a brunette and I want her front to look like this and her back to look... That's not what we mean. We are talking about the behaviors in us that we have learned from our previous experience. However extensive your experience or however limited your experience is, is in my case. But the bottom line is, is that when I first came to program and I did my first four-step, I had never even been on a date. I had never been on a date with a girl in my entire life. And my then sponsor said to me, look at every relationship you have. Is it selfish or not? Are you using that relationship for what God intended you to use friendship for? Or are you in that relationship to get something from the other person? And it was one of the most beneficial things. I have had the most incredible luck with sponsors. I don't know how I got so lucky, but if there's anything I've had, it's I've had tremendous fortune in people coming into my life, both from the sponsor aspect and from the sponsee aspect, that have changed my life for the better, and they have touched me profoundly. Now... Let's go to the bottom of 69 
It says, in this way we try, or the middle, in this way we try to shape a sane and sound ideal for our future sex life. We subjected each relation to this test, was it selfish or not? And that's what I had to do because I had never been on a date. So if you've been on a date, you have to do the same thing. We ask God to mold our ideals and help us to live up to them. We remembered always that our sex powers were God-given and therefore good, neither to be used lightly or selfishly, nor to be despised and loathed. Whatever our ideal turns out to be, we must be willing to grow toward it. That doesn't mean that you're just going to be handed something that says, here you go, chubby, you've got a good piece of paper here, here's your goals. You've got, i got to work toward it. Not being an infant, not being an immature baby, not being a moron takes work on my part. It takes work on my... I see that smile. It takes work on my part. I have to work at not being an imbecile. Some people come to it naturally. I don't. I don't. I'm probably the most immature person you'll meet today. Okay. Whatever ideal turns... We must be willing to make amends where we have done harm, provided that we do not bring about still more harm in so doing. You're kissing Fred's wife. You don't knock on Fred's door and say, Hey, Fred, by the way, I'm kissing your wife. The way you make amends to Fred is you stop the behavior. It's not, you don't have to go to Yale or Harvard. Stop kissing Fred's wife. Okay? It's funny because it's so simply true. It's right in front of you, okay? In other words, we treat sex as we would any other problem. In meditation, we ask God what we should do about each specific matter. The right answer will come if we want it. God alone can judge our sex situation. Counsel with other persons is often desirable. But we let God be the final judge. We realize that some people are as fanatical about sex as others are loose. We avoid hysterical thinking or advice. Suppose we fall short of the chosen ideal and stumble. Does this mean we are going to get drunk? Some people tell us so, but this is only a half-truth. It depends on us and our motives. If we are sorry for what we have done and have the honest desire to let God take us to better things, we believe we will be forgiven and will have learned our lesson. If we are not sorry and our conduct continues to harm others, we are quite sure to drink. We are not theorizing. These are facts out of our experience. Because why are you going to do continued harm to another person because of self-will run riot because it's all about you and if you're in self-will run riot you're going to eat the bakery I guarantee you you're going to eat the bakery you're not going to stay abstinent like that if we have been thorough about our personal inventory thanks, sum up about sex thanks Ro we earnestly pray for the right ideal, for guidance in each questionable situation, for sanity and for the strength to do the right thing. If sex is very troublesome, we throw ourselves the harder into helping others. We think of their needs and work for them. This takes us out of ourselves. It quiets the imperious urge when to yield would mean heartache. If we have been thorough about our personal inventory, we have written down a lot. We have listed and analyzed our resentments. We have begun to comprehend their futility and their fatality. They are meaningless and they are death-defying. We have con commenced to see their terrible destructiveness. We have begun to learn tolerance, patience, and goodwill toward all men, even our enemies, for we look on them as sick people. We have listed the people we have hurt by our conduct and are willing to straighten out the past if we can. In this book, you will read again and again that faith did for us what we could not do for ourselves. We hope you are convinced now that God can remove whatever self-will has blocked you off from him. 
If you have already made a decision, step three, and an inventory of your grosser handicaps, step four, you, and an in, uh, I'm sorry, you have made a good beginning. I can't count the number of people that do a four step, realize, heck, my life is not perfect. I'm not going back there anymore. Your life isn't going to be perfect. Keep going. It's ne There's nothing in the book that says now you get what you want. There's, one of the promises is not that she'll drop dead. It's not in there. One of the promises is not now the whole world is going to get up and say, Roanne, what do you need from me today? Okay, I'm on it. Click. It's not going to happen. It doesn't work that way. No matter how evolved my recovery gets, I will never rise above the level of a human being. And as a human being, I'm going to be one of many. Okay? If you have already made a decision, step three, in an inventory of your grosser handicaps, you have made a good beginning. That being so, you have swallowed and digested some big chunks of truth about yourself. Now, we're going to take a group conscience. We could talk about step five, six, and seven, which is very quick. Or we could do ask it, ask it, and be done, and that means you've got to be on time in the morning. What time do we start tomorrow? 830? 830. 830. 830. Okay. I am not eating breakfast here tomorrow. I am doing something. I don't know what it is. <laughs> if we don't, if we don't do... Five and six or whatever you said. We're we'll going to do, do all? No, we're going to, we'll, I'm going to do everything. I'm going to do that in the morning, but we're going to have to just oh. hustle it. Okay. How many yeah. wants to do ask it, ask it? One, two, three, four, five, six. How many want me to do step five? Six, okay. Okay, step five. There's two very simple qualifications for step five. You must be informed and unaffected. Informed means you're in recovery. Oops. Means you're in recovery. And unaffected. Now, just for the sake of this little scenario here, let's just say that my friend Allison over here is going with a guy named Brian, which is a pretty good assumption. Right? Yes. So let's just assume that she's going with a guy named Brian. That has happened from time to time. A few times. There's an old 60s song, Henry VIII. Okay, back to the reality here. And I am a friend of Brian's. I know Brian very well. I work with Brian. He's a great guy. He works at my office, and we're, we, we go to lunch from time to time. And I know Allison. Am I a person that should be taking her fifth step? Absolutely not. Because I may be informed, but I'm not unaffected. So I will not do that. I will not take the fifth step from her because I'm going to be affected. You can give it to a clergyman. You can give it to a doctor. You can give it to a chimney sweep. You can give it to, uh, to the whatever you want to do as long as the person is informed and unaffected. 
Informed means you know the program. You know the columns. You know the way that they should go. You understand the fourth column. You understand what the program is about. So if somebody tries to say, I did this, this, and that, and then they say, what's your part? Well, I had no part. They made me do it. You know to call them on their BS. That's what I mean when I say informed. Now, we're going to do steps six and seven. What? Unaffected means I am not going to be affected by, your, by listening to your fourth step. Let's say you have a resentment against Fred. You and Fred have been on, on the outs and you have a resentment against Fred. And you know that I'm friends with Fred. You do not give me your fourth step. I'm going to be affected by that because I know who you're talking about. I'm friends with the person. I'm going to be affected. Does that make sense to you? Okay. Let's go to the top of 76. It's a lot easier to find people to take your fifth steps today than it's ever been. I mean, it's not like when the book was written, it was, it was hard to find people. Okay. <clears throat> Let's go to the top of 76. Now, this is how quick the process can go. This is how fast it can go. You have your inventory. Don't burn the damn thing. You're going to need it. Where did this come up with, with, uh, with, with OA? I don't know when. The, I came in in 79, and they, we used to burn the inventories. And, I, and it also says we tell someone else our life story. So we would write autobiographies. What a waste of time. If I've listened to your fifth step, I know your life story. I know your life story. I, I know more about you than your best friends, your parents do. So let's go to the top of 76. If we can answer to our satisfaction and we look at step six, we have emphasized enough, we have emphasized willingness as being indispensable. Are we now ready to let God remove from us all the things which we have admitted are objectionable? Can he now take them all, every one? If we still cling to something, we will not let go. We ask God to help us be willing. You're not really willing to let go of lying. You're not willing to let go of stealing. You're not willing to let go of cheating on your wife or husband. You're not willing to let go of the things you're doing that are against honesty. You ask for willingness. You ask for willingness. That's what you do. Now, when ready, we say something like this. My creator, I am now willing that you should have all of me, good and bad. I pray that you now remove from me every single defect of character which stands in the way of my usefulness to you and my fellows. Grant me strength as I go out from here to do your bidding. Amen. We have completed step seven. So we take an hour on the previous page. We take one hour break between our fourth step and our six and seven at the bottom of 75 returning home we i should have done this first i'm out of order here returning home we find a place where we can be quiet for an hour at the bottom of 75 carefully reviewing what we have done we thank god from the bottom of our hearts that we know him better taking this book down from our shelf we turn to the page which contains the 12 steps carefully reading the first five proposals we ask if we have omitted anything for we are building an arch through which we shall walk a free man at last is our work solid so far are the stones properly in place have we skimped on the cement put in the foundation have we tried to make mortar without sand and then we do six and seven now 
I said that tomorrow we would do 8, 9, 10. Uh, we would do 10, 11, and 12. I'm exhausted. Let's open it up for Ask It Basket if that's okay. And tomorrow morning we'll do 8, 9, 10, 11, and 12. So let's open it up for Ask It Basket because I'm, 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 I'm running out of gas here. Where is the thing anyway? Who has it? Who has it? Okay, bring it up. Okay. What does it mean to turn our lives over to God? How, does, how do I do it? You do the steps. What does it mean to turn your life over to God? You do the steps. You're turning your life, which is your action, your will, which is your thinking, do the steps. And if that's too simple of an answer, I don't know how to make it any easier. The book is very clear. This is the course of action. How do you define recover? How do you define recovered? I define recovered as a person who has completed the ninth step and has been doing 10, 11, and 12 to the point where they no longer want the food, where the food is the last thing on their mind. That's how I define recover. Someone who's had a vital spiritual awakening as the result of the steps. Do you believe there are slips? Is there any room for mistakes in abstinence? Um, yes and no. If you're eating something and they've changed the ingredients of it, perhaps you didn't know about it, but when you're wantonly and you're deliberately overeating, that is not a slip. That is, that is relapse. When you're absolutely making a decision to eat chocolate cake or you're eating whatever, that is not a slip. That is relapse. That is an absolute relapse. What kind of duties we should what kind of duties we should include in our God job description that could increase our opportunities to make him personal in our lives? That's for you to really decide, not for me. What kind of qualities do you want in a God? What kind of qualities do you think you need in a God? Put those down. It's not for me to tell you. It is what you need. What I believe and what I need and what you need could be two different things, could be two completely different things. Don't be afraid to give God characteristics of what it is you want Him to be, what it is you need Him to be. Harlan, please talk about Fat Serenity as AA Big Book versus OA Big Book. There is no big book in OA. There's only a big book in AA. And I think most of the OA literature uh, has some good information on the traditions, but some of the, a lot of the information in the steps is very confusing, very convoluted. And if you want to recover from this illness, you'll use the big book of AA to work the steps. That's my opinion. You're asking me? I'm telling you. What is fat serenity? I've been fat and I've been serene. I've never been both at the same time. I don't think there's such a thing as fat serenity. I think there's a sugar coma that looks a little bit like fat serenity. I think that there is a, a, a definite sugar coma that, there, that comes upon a person. But if you want to recover, you recover by working the steps out of this book, not the other stuff. The other stuff has some good information on it, but if you really want to recover, this is what you need to recover. And as I say, there is no such thing as fat serenity. I know there's sugar coma, but not fat serenity. Okay. <clears throat> oh, 
what do you think about taking your time to work the steps? If you want to die in the food, you go right ahead. There is a time frame to this, and you're either wanting to do this or you don't. I can't think of a reason why you'd want to dilly-dally. Is this problematic for recovery? It's problematic for any recovery. You work the steps. You don't dilly-dally. You don't take your time. You move through the steps. And the more you hesitate, the more you're saying, I really don't want this. I really don't want this. I text my food to my sponsor, then promptly eat something different. Abstinent, though... How do I stop lying? By stop lying. If you're not willing to stop lying, ask yourself a question. What on earth are you doing? What kind of sick scenario is this? And who are you hurting? You're hurting you. You're either willing or you're not. If you're not willing, ask yourself what the heck you're doing. This is just nonsense. To email or text and say, this is what I'm going to eat and eat something else. It's nonsense. If you don't want to recover, just be honest with your sponsor and say, hey, I don't want to, want, to, want to recover. My sponsor just walked in the room. He's got the toughest job in OA. Can you work the steps without stopping the addictive foods? No. Accepting step one, no. In this program, in AA program, in any program, you must put down the food. Dr. Silkworth and the doctor's opinion is quite clear you must put down the food. In Alcoholics Anonymous, they do not say you're still drunk, you're still drinking, let's work the steps. So no, there's only one step I must work perfectly, and that's step number one. But can you work the steps without stopping the addictive foods? Absolutely not. And if you're thinking you can, you're fooling yourself. You're not fooling anyone else. Okay, Uh, this is a blank piece of paper. Okay. What is your food plan? Again, I don't answer food questions like that. Sorry about that. My food plan won't get you to first base. It's of no use to you whatsoever. See a nutritionist. Get your food plan. Get your food plan. I was very clear. I don't take those questions. For If one struggles, is letting go more not because of lack of effort or desire, but more a feeling of powerless to do so, what can help? Getting willingness. Fake it till you make it. Get willing. What do you mean you're powerless to do so? You can let go. How do you let go? Work the steps. Put your resentments down. Put your fears. Put your sexual harms down others. That's letting go. And if you're not letting it go, if you're having a problem with step four or nine, you're not having a problem with step four or nine. You're having a problem with step two. You don't have a God in your heart and a God in your head that you're willing to believe in. If you are struggling with step two, you are going to continue to flounder. And you must sit down and make a job description for God and make a job description for Him of a God that you are willing to believe in. So if you're not willing to do these steps, you have a step two issue, not a step four issue. Step two and ten will be the trapdoor steps for most people in relapse. If you don't have two and you're not doing ten, you're going to just boom, you're going to be right in the food. I have only been in the third workshop. I have only been in the third workshop. You hear, you hear spoken 
a lot on the people that came together to form AA, which is very interesting, but it took a lot of time away from the steps and how they came about stories about people who were affected by the steps, etc. I will look forward to seeing where this goes. I do talk a lot about AA history, and I do talk about it because I feel from the feedback I have gotten over the years that it is not only informative, but it shows you how powerful God is. And I don't do it as a way of distracting from the steps. I do it as a way of enhancing the knowledge and enhancing the steps. So you can see that step two came in from a very unexpected source. Roland Hazard goes to Jung. He's drunk. Jung tells him, go get a spiritual experience. He goes to the Oxford group. He meets Sam Shoemaker. He meets Seber Graves Jr. They go to uh, East Dorset, Vermont. Of all places, East Dorset, Vermont. Not New York, not L.A., not East Dorset, Vermont. And it shows you, if you're, if you're me, this is what I'm thinking. I didn't do it to hurt you. But I, it shows the magnificence of God and how the constellations of the world came together in this one man, Bill Wilson, that he got the problem from Silkworth and the solution from the Oxford group. And in this one person, he married the problem and the solution and he brought it to the world. And so I do that and I spend time talking about these people and I spend time talking about history not to hurt you, not to distract from anything, but to enhance it. If I fail to do so, I'm sorry, but I'm unlikely to change. It's unlikely I'm going to change that because I just feel in Bill's story on page 8, which is what you're talking about there, and, on, and Dr. Silkworth in the doctor's opinion, because these things demonstrate the power of God. You've all seen the power of M&Ms with peanuts. You've seen the power of Kit Kats and Sara Lee brownies. You felt your, yourself dying. You have felt yourself circling the drain. But there is a power, and it is the power of the recovery. And these men... And these people, and I could go on and on, there's women too, there's Sylvia Kay, and there's Marty Mann, and there's lots of, these people demonstrate for us, if we'll wake up, the power of the recovery. So I'm, okay, all right, and that's about all I got. I can't even believe that I got that.